0: This is still very much the party of former President Donald Trump.
1: Despite facing criminal charges, Trump has lapsed ahead of his opponents about a month before the Iowa caucuses. We'll take a close look at an unusual Republican race. For Sunday, December 17th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and hey, do you want to come to my holiday party? If the answer is no, it's okay. I won't be offended, really. In fact, we will hear about new research indicating that we all overestimate how much people care when we decline
2: invites. The way this research project came about was because of me fearing these negative implications. So when I saw these studies, I'm like,
1: wow, it's really not that bad. And we'll check in with the hockey goalie, all things considered, is following through his first pro season. It it was a really, it was an incredible moment. I mean, to hear my name, you get called like that. All that and more after these news headlines. Stick around.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will fight until the end as its ground and aerial assault on Gaza continues into its third month. As NPR's Carrie Khan reports, Israel says it's uncovered one of the largest tunnels in Gaza that's been used by Hamas militants. Speaking
4: to his cabinet Sunday, Netanyahu said Israel will not stop its campaign to root out Hamas from Gaza, nor rest until the more than 100 hostages being held there are brought home. Netanyahu is under increasing pressure from families of the hostages to broker a new deal for their release. Dozens of relatives and supporters are now camping in front of the war cabinet building in Tel Aviv. Israel is also under pressure from the U.S. to reduce casualties in Gaza, now reaching more than 19,000, according to Gaza's health ministry. Israel's military said Sunday it discovered a large tunnel complex used by Hamas
3: just feet from a key border crossing with Gaza. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. In Georgia, Republican state officials are using a legal strategy in the state's redistricting fight that threatens a key tool for enforcing the Voting Rights Act. As NPR's Hunzi Lawang reports, it's the latest step in a legal battle over Georgia's election maps.
5: Private individuals and groups have brought the majority of lawsuits seeking to enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bans racial discrimination in the elections process. Those lawsuits include the cases against the congressional and state legislative maps approved by Georgia's Republican-controlled legislature. A federal judge ruled those maps violate Section 2 by diluting the collective power of black voters in Georgia. But Republican state officials say in a new court filing, they're appealing the judge's ruling with an unusual argument. They argue private individuals and groups do not have the right to bring this kind of lawsuit. It's an argument other Republican officials have also raised in redistricting fights in Arkansas, North Dakota, and Louisiana. Anzi Lewong, NPR News.
3: A strong storm system is bringing heavy rain and dangerous winds to the northeast. It's expected to reach Canada tomorrow night. The storm has already wreaked havoc in Florida and South Carolina, as NPR's Juliana Kim reports.
6: Over 18,000 households in Florida were without power on Sunday morning due to the fierce storm. By the afternoon, the storm system reached the city of Charleston in South Carolina, producing dangerous flash floods. The National Weather Service said both North Carolina and South Carolina are expected to see severe thunderstorms and possibly some tornadoes and hail. The heavy rain will remain a threat until Monday morning for most parts of the east coast. Juliana Kim, NPR News.
3: And the National Weather Service has issued flash flood watches and warnings for parts of several states from the mid-Atlantic up through the northeast. Meanwhile, colder temperatures coupled with windy conditions could bring lake-effect snow south of the Great Lakes and into the Adirondacks next, early next week. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
7: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Karpilio in Boston. While the National Weather Service is warning of potentially damaging winds tomorrow, much of eastern Massachusetts will be under a high wind warning from 5 a.m. through tomorrow evening. Some areas could get wind gusts up to 65 miles per hour, which could cause tree damage and power outages. National Grid says it is mobilizing additional crews ready to respond to storm damage. Commuter rail service returns to Lynn tomorrow. The MBTA and commuter rail operator Keolis say that it is nine months ahead of schedule. Lynn Station was closed in October of 2022 due to safety concerns. A newly released report from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development shows a sharp increase in homelessness in Massachusetts. The state experienced the fifth-highest increase in homelessness in the U.S. That's more than 3,600 newly unhoused people or more than a 23% increase year over year. Several local organizations are teeping up for the annual Santa to a Senior campaign. Seniors in need can request a gift via a display at several local stores. Shoppers will buy the gift, which will be given to local seniors in need. Wendy Flynn is the general manager at home instead one of the participating merchants. She says it's an important way to combat seniors' loneliness at this time of year.
8: In The holidays, I think it's, you know, more magnified because most people are celebrating and seeing family, and and maybe it's, you know, they've lost their spouse and they no longer have a spark for the holiday. So we see a lot of it being a very difficult period
7: for a lot of seniors. People can learn more at Home Instead's website. Well, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Patriots this afternoon at Gillette Stadium, 27-17. The final. The Pats' record now drops to three and eleven. Again, a high wind warning from 5 a.m. tomorrow through tomorrow evening. Rain developing overnight. Lows around 50. Rain and very windy tomorrow. Low 60s. And then a chance of rain upper 40s on Tuesday. 48 degrees in Boston.
8: WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career, with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day.
1: We are just weeks away from the Republican Iowa caucus, the official kickoff to the presidential primary season. In many years, Iowa provides a golden opportunity for a candidate to break out from the pack or establish him or herself with a surprise strong finish. This year is different. Looking at
5: the race in Iowa, former President Donald Trump up by 30 points now.
1: And
3: That's former President Donald Trump's lead is growing in the state. Iowa, 51% of Iowa voters now support the former president as the nominee. While
1: In this race, the Republican field has only ever had one leader former president Donald Trump. And that is despite the fact that he is currently facing 91 felony charges from state and federal jurisdictions and that he has not participated in a single Republican presidential debate so far. Republican candidates who are running against Trump to try and be the presidential nominee themselves, they've been reluctant to criticize or challenge the former president. Vivek Ramaswamy often goes out of his way, in fact, to praise Trump. President Trump, I believe, was the best president of the 21st century. It's a fact. Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, is the only candidate who has consistently criticized Trump and criticized his fellow candidates for not doing the same.
0: The fact is that when you go and you say the truth about somebody who is a dictator, a bully, who has taken shots at everybody, whether they've given him great service or not over time, who dares to disagree with him, then I understand why the thieves three are timid to say anything about it.
1: But perhaps as a result, Christie has often found himself at the back of the pack struggling to stay relevant to the race. Trump, for his part, often seems to be ignoring the primary altogether when he does campaign.
9: We have to send a great signal and then maybe these people just say, okay, it's over now. It's over. We got to end it because we have to focus on crooked Joe Biden and the Democrats. Trump has reshaped
1: just about every piece of the Republican Party. And about a month out, it looks like he's reshaping the Iowa caucuses, too. To look at how strange Iowa has been this year and what it tells us about Republicans in 2023, I'm joined by two Iowa caucus experts, Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters and J. Ann Selzer, who's president of the Selzer and Company polling firm and who is widely viewed as the pollster with the sharpest understanding of Iowa's electorate. So I'm going to start with you, Clay. You've covered a few caucuses now at this point. Does this one feel
0: different to you? Well, definitely it feels a lot different. It's unprecedented, uh, which is kind of a a phrase that gets used almost to the point where it's exhausted, but this is a very unprecedented time to have a former president indicted on several criminal charges, and who is far away, the front runner of of the race for the Iowa caucuses? Um, you, you're not seeing a whole lot of growth within the crowds when you go see some of the other second tier candidates, and those second tier candidates are just really far down from where Donald Trump has been in the polls this entire uh, caucus cycle throughout the year. So very, very strange uh, caucus cycle, unlike any of the others that I've covered.
1: And you are the Iowa pollster. How different is the caucus compared to previous ones you've studied when it comes to the numbers, when it comes to where the candidates are at this point in time, about a month out?
10: Right. Well, it's different in a couple of ways. For one thing, we've had sort of more like chaotic caucuses in terms of the polling, with a lot of candidates taking the lead with different polls. And this time, it's a consistent lead for Donald Trump. Significantly in this poll, he cracked the 50% mark. He's standing at 51% of likely Republican caucus goers saying he is their first choice. And that's meaningful for two reasons. One is that it's symbolic. If anybody that cracks 50%, that's an emotional feeling there. But then secondly, it's algebraically significant, which is there aren't enough percentage points left over among the other candidates at this point to appear to be able to mount a charge.
1: This latest survey that you put together um, was interesting on a lot of different fronts. I think, as we were talking before, a lot of your surveys have very uh, aptly popped bubbles of the way people hypothesize about campaigns. And it said, well, that's not actually what's happening right now. Uh, You mentioned there was a few different ways that that the the data surprised you this time around.
10: Right. I think one of the things that surprised us is the, the theory was that if some of these lesser candidates would drop out, that would be good for other non-Trump candidates. And maybe that was a little bit of the three-point bump that Ron DeSantis got. But Donald Trump got an eight-point bump. So you kind of think that even though people are dropping out, they're coming still more to Donald Trump. I think another way is that we've heard people say, well, Donald Trump's got all he's got. He's got his group, and then you just got to go get more people who've maybe never caucused before. Well, Donald Trump is 51% overall. He's 63% with first-time caucus-goers. So if anybody is out there apparently recruiting new caucus-goers, it appears to be former President Trump. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So, Clay, Ann's talking about Trump with this 30-something point lead, again, over 50% in the latest survey. Again, this is somebody who is facing 91 felony counts right now. How does this translate to what you see and hear when you're at these events, particularly when you're at uh, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis events? How, how are people showing up at those events, thinking about what's going on right now, making sense of this?
0: Well, most of the conversations that I have with the voters who are turning out to these Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley events are looking for an alternative to the former president. And they're not talking about any kind of concerns that they might have about what another time for Trump in the White House would mean for democracy or anything like that. They're talking about trying to find an alternative to uh, the divisiveness that Donald Trump has had. They're, mm-hmm. they're wanting to move on. But as I mentioned before, we're not really seeing the kind of groundswell you see for support in candidates. Of caucus cycles past. I'm thinking of like Barack Obama or Pete Buttigieg or even Mike Huckabee or Ted Cruz. You saw these this kind of what felt like a grassroots growth that has happened. And so on on the the non-Trump events, a lot of these people are still trying to make up their mind. But when Donald Trump is so far and away the front runner, you wonder what kind of momentum somebody can have when they're coming in at polls like Ann's so low. Um, You know, Ron DeSantis has done the kind of traditional model that has rewarded candidates in the past where he's done all 99 counties uh, where he's that's every county in the state of Iowa. He's picked up the endorsement of Governor Kim Reynolds, and it's very rare for a sitting governor to endorse. Mm -hmm. But but you're just really not seeing the kind of movement that you would expect in past cycles where that's given some candidates much more trajectory
1: i'm curious what both of you think about this other factor you know the the way that people frame iowa is so much that 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 people there uh reward the retail campaigning you have to put in the work right not only does trump have his legal problems he's made campaigning kind of a a minimal effort thing he's not participated in a single debate yet he has not gone to iowa anywhere near the, the the amount of time that other candidates have spent there And yet he doesn't seem to be being punished for it at all by 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 caucus goers does that surprise either of you
10: i'm aware that he's got a a much more sophisticated campaign team and that the rallies that he's holding or the big town halls they're really working those crowds and getting commitments out of them one rally could be what six seven eight town halls that Mm -hmm. some of the other candidates would Mm -hmm. do. And I I was visited by a reporter from CBS Miami the other day, and he told me that the DeSantis campaign has pledged to knock on one million doors in Iowa. And I looked surprised, and he said, are you surprised? I said, there are only, what, 1.2 million households (laughs) <laughs> in Iowa, so how, what counts as a door knock That's right but it could be that kind of massive effort, which I think we would see just yeah. observationally
0: and I, I go to these different Trump events, and it is much different than it was eight years ago, where there is a video that plays that explains how the caucuses even work. I mean, I've talked to Iowa potential caucus goers who have told me that they have never caucused before, and so the the Trump campaign is signing people up. You see these people working the crowds. That one volunteer I remember saying, "Hats and uh, and shirts uh, don't translate to a, a a victory." He put it much more eloquently and quicker than I just did. But you're seeing much more of an effort than you saw eight years ago, for sure. And this
1: is the point in an interview with you. In the month before a caucus where i'm contractually obligated to talk about rick santorum just for a moment who oh good (laughs) is the patron saint of a candidate who comes from behind at the very last moment and surprises everybody with this huge last minute surge of support it's not just him who's accomplished that this is something that has happened time and time again when you look at the data of where caucus scores are with this contest do you see any possibility for anybody to pull that off over the next month
10: well, the ghost of Rick Santorum whispers in my ear, never say never, because he was polling in, you know, four, five, six percent in our next to the last poll. He only got double digits the first night of our final poll and then grew and then grew and then grew. And, and if you look at the overall number, it wasn't that astonishing. But the trajectory from those nights, that night after night building, you know, he ended up winning the Iowa caucuses.
1: Clay, what have all the conversations that you've had at all of the events for DeSantis, for Haley, for Trump, for anybody else, the the state of this race a month out, what do you think that tells us about the state of the Republican Party in 2023 going into 2024?
0: This is still very much the party of former President Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are trying like heck to try to have some kind of a groundswell. But what the former president has done to take control of the Republican Party is still very alive and well. You're seeing it. Uh, Even like I said earlier, the people that are showing up to these other candidates events, they're not saying anything too negative about the former president. They're saying they just want to move on. And so it's kind of a miraculous thing to see where things were eight years ago and to see how much just his grip on the Republican Party has strengthened uh, since his first presidency and as he's running for a third time.
1: Yeah. That's Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters. Clay, thanks so much. You're welcome. As well as J. Ann Selzer, president of Selzer & Company polling firm. Thank you so much.
0: My
10: pleasure.
1: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Cropilio. Thanks so much for being with us. In the forecast, rain developing tonight with a low around 50, rain very windy tomorrow, high wind warnings in effect for eastern Massachusetts, gusts 55 to 65 with heavy rain, and still a chance of rain upper 40s on Tuesday.
9: WBUR supporters include We Need a Vacation, with over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at weneedavacation.com and Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now.
7: Join some of your favorite WBUR hosts at CitySpace for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's this Tuesday. Tickets at WBUR.org
3: events. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Israel says it's uncovered one of the biggest tunnels in Gaza that's been used by Hamas militants. This as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Israel will fight until the end as its ground and aerial assault on Gaza continues into its third month. New research shows a popular app used by parents and schools to coordinate transportation for students has serious issues. The problems are fixed now, but officials say the security gaps could have exposed sensitive information about minors. And sculptor Richard Hunt has died. His family says the prolific artist died yesterday at his home in Chicago. No cause was given. He was the first black sculptor to receive a solo retrospective at New York City's Museum of Modern Art. I'm Janine Hurst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
1: This is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. It's the holidays, and that means sometimes we get invitations to events that we just can't attend or maybe, to be real, we just do not want to attend. But we worry, some of us too much, about the impact of saying no. Will my friends be angry? Will my colleagues think I don't want to spend time with them outside work? The anxiety can spiral. A new study suggests, though, that actually declining an invitation might not be as bad as you think. Julian Givy is an assistant professor of marketing at West Virginia University and one of the study's authors. Julian, welcome to All Things Considered.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: I thought I was, you know, unique and just always worrying about the, the implications of saying no and trying not to disappoint people, but I guess enough people feel this way
2: that you have thought to do a study on it. What was the inspiration here? I was invited to an event. And it was it was someone's wedding, you know, quite far away and quite a hassle to get to. And mm-hmm. I really did not want to attend it, but I was like, man, I can't, I can't say no, right? They're gonna they're gonna kill me if I don't go. And so it got me wondering, you know, if people kind of worry a little bit too much about these negative ramifications. And so I was interested, you know, do they actually exist? And tell me what exactly the study looked at and what you found. Yeah, so in the study, we basically had uh, two groups of participants. Some were what we call called inviters and others were what we called invitees. And so if you were in an inviter condition, you imagine that you invited someone to do a social activity. So it could be, you know, going to dinner, it could be attending a museum, you know, whatever. And then what we did was we had invitees predict kind of the negative ramifications of what would happen if they said no. So for example, how upset would the inviter be? How disappointed would they be? How, how sad would they be? How angry um, would they invite them to do something again in the future? And then we also had inviters tell us like, well, how would you actually feel, right? So they respond to all those same questions, only kind of assessing it for themselves. And what we kind of found consistently over and over across uh, several different studies is that invitees tend to overestimate these, these various negative implications. So
1: just summing this up, you asked both sides to kind of weigh what they thought would happen and then what would actually happen and consistently the person who was saying no overestimated how upset the other person would be
2: yeah that's 100 percent accurate
1: i do have to ask did it any way at all did you get into the pros and cons of making up an excuse when there isn't an excuse like instead of no i don't want to go
2: oh i'd love to but i got a flu or whatever you know i think when it comes to offering excuses I think three pieces sort of advice for people here. The first is to is to offer a reason why. So this is kind of a funny story. This happened before the before I started with this research project, but last year I had, you know, texted my mother and asked her, Hey, do you wanna go get Chipotle? It was like a nice, you know, summer night. You wanna go grab Chipotle? And all she responded with was no thanks. Wow. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like wow you can't even can't even give me anything you know that you're busy or tired or something right um and so so one give a reason which your mom did number one yeah so moral of the story give give a reason right and then the second piece is uh you know some some events right require you to spend money so it's you know tickets to a football game going to a show out to eat etc if you cite a lack of money. Um, people tend to be a lot more understanding than if you cite a lack of time. So in, in either case, they're rather understanding. But you know, I think it makes sense, right? That mm-hmm. logically we would think, okay, if someone can't afford it, then we're not going to you know put the pressure on them. And then the third point is kind of the the no but strategy. And this is a very this is one I use all the time in my own life. And so it's when someone invites you to do something, and for whatever reason you can't, right? Um, you can always go with, say, you know, no, I can't make it, but I would love to do X, Y, or Z with you, you know, in the coming weeks. And with this, it's kind of nice because in some cases, right, we're declining events not necessary because we have like another commitment or we can't afford to go or whatever, but really just, we just don't want to go to it. Right. There's certain events that you just yeah. don't want to attend. And with this, you can kind of point in the direction as to what you do want to do. Right. So I don't want to go to this holiday party with people. I don't know all that well, but if the host would like to go out to lunch next week, I would, you know, let's, let's do that. I'm
1: wondering, has doing this research and seeing the results led you to change the way that you respond to invites?
2: So I always try to use um, my, my own findings to kind of inform my day-to-day life. And as I, as I kind of, you know, one, like I mentioned before, I use that no but strategy all the time now. So I certainly, like everyone else, you know, the, the kind of the way this research project came about was because of me fearing these negative implications. And so when I saw these studies, I'm like, wow, it's really not that bad. And I kind of thought to myself, you know, whenever I invite people to do things, and they turn me down, it doesn't really matter all that much to me, right? I can go on to the next person, yeah. or maybe I inv- I've already invited five others, and so it doesn't matter too, too much. So of my day-to-day life now, um, when I'm invited to do things, I, I feel more comfortable with turning people down. And also, I think that no-but strategy you know, definitely has, helps in that regard, too.
1: Well, Julian Givy, an assistant professor of marketing at West Virginia University, thank you for accepting our invitation to come on All Things Considered to talk about your new study
2: about invitations. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad glad I didn't turn this one, turn this <laughs> invitation down. Thanks for having me.
1: In kitchens across the country, bakers are cranking out batches of treats for holiday parties, cookie swaps, or just to eat off the cooling rack. It's undeniable December is all about cookies, and that is especially true for the team of food writers that puts together the lineup of new recipes featured in the New York Times annual Cookie Week. So this year, armed with a stand mixer and a microphone, NPR producer Emma Klein set out to discover what it takes to make a knockout cookie recipe.
11: I love baking. Sometimes it's pies, cakes, or bread, both sweet and salty. But every December as a kid, my mom and I would spend hours crafting cookies to fill festive tins for family and friends. Now, years later, I love to find new cookie recipes to try. So this year, I had some friends over to bake some of the New York Times holiday cookies. We made the matcha latte, Mexican hot chocolate, and the Technicolor cookies. And I'll get into why they're called that later. After our baking party, I called up the people who actually created this year's cookies to hear how they come up with their recipes. New York Times food writer, Eric Kim, felt like he had a lot to live up to with his 2023 cookie offering.
10: I had a lot of pressure on myself this year because my cookie last year was a gochujang caramel cookie, which truly went bonkers. That's that's the most viral i've ever had a recipe go we were kind of like <laughs> selling out culture in stores
11: kim and the rest of the team spent months trying to perfect their recipes they start prepping for cookie week in the summer
10: if people knew how much work went into each cookie i mean the first year i almost lost it <laughs> my parents came downstairs and saw maybe 30 bowls of different batches and they were kind of like wait you're still working on the cookies and i was like Go away. <laughs> Don't talk to me.
11: Kim's recipe this year was the result of a bit of experimentation.
10: These cookies started off as matcha blossom cookies because I was sort of playing around with, you know, those like really old peanut butter blossom cookies that you had at your friend's house, maybe.
11: He eventually ended up with a matcha latte cookie, a combo of the popular green tea flavor baked into a cookie and topped with a creamy milk frosting. Mm, are they done? Next up, we made Von Vreeland's Mexican hot chocolate cookies. They're a chewy, spiced chocolate treat stuffed with marshmallows.
8: Oh, this is good. I got a little tingling
6: sensation. That's because, uh, you can't handle spices.
11: <laughs> <laughs> the Technicolor cookies, developed by New York Times contributor Sam Sanavaratna, are the most striking-looking cookies of the seven recipes. So pretty. They're bright with psychedelic stripes and spiced up with
6: cardamom and ginger. They think people really do eat with their eyes as much as they do with their mouths and especially when you're trying to convince people to make your food especially at this time there's a million cookies on offer so i think it is important to make things that are visually appealing and then the taste has to match it's not worth it if it's only pretty if she gets the recipe
11: right readers will be making batches and batches of these cookies for the holidays but sam she won't be
6: by the time it comes to the actual holiday i've made so many baked goods that i usually just take a full-on break from it. <laughs> so,
11: were this year's cookies a hit? Here at NPR headquarters, we had our own little taste test at the All Things Considered Holiday Potluck. Can I get you guys to taste this and tell me what you think?
6: Oh, good. I like the texture. Kind of buttery cookie. It's really nice.
8: It was supposed to give matcha. It was supposed to give matcha. It wasn't giving that much, but it was giving, you know, like a little
3: ginger moment.
8: That's what it was giving for me. I ate all of it though. That's good.
11: So, Pretty popular, but I might need to make these one more time to get it right for the next holiday party. From NPR News, I'm Emma Klein, wishing you all happy holiday baking.
1: This fall, we went on the ice with rookie goalie Mitchell Gibson as he tried to make the roster for the Washington Capitals.
12: I like a shot. What? I like a shot.
1: Yeah, It's keeping me on my toes right now. Gibson didn't make the team, so we're following along throughout his first professional season in the minor leagues. He's been shuttling back and forth between the Capitals affiliates in Charleston, South Carolina and Hershey, Pennsylvania, and things are going well.
12: I think my self-confidence has improved a lot to kind of help with some of those things that don't get in my own head. I, you know, I got this. I can do this. Don't get intimidated by, by the moment, you know, crowds get a little bit bigger, fans get a little bit more intense, all that kind of stuff. But I'm trusting what I, what I got going on right now. Gibson scored a goal, believe it
1: or not. And remember, he's a goalie. And he's gotten the chance to suit up for a team that he rooted for in the stands as a kid. But as expected in your first year on the pros, there have been a lot of adjustments. We caught up with Gibson the other day. He was in Florida for an away game with the South Carolina Stingrays. And he said the biggest challenge has been the constant back
12: and forth, playing for two squads. It's funny because South Carolina, it's 60, 70 degrees. We can go to the beach, go out downtown and, and a lot of good restaurants down there. and then. You'll get the call-up to Hershey, and the next day I'll be in a winter jacket, long pants, and got to throw away the flip-flops. Is it hard to get into a groove when you're going back and forth between two teams that much? It was. I had a really funny um, – I played Friday night in Charleston. Next morning, I get on the team bus, and we start pulling away from the rink. In five minutes into the bus ride, I get a call from one of the Caps guys saying, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, we're on the team bus. We're, we're traveling to he goes to Greenville. And he goes, stop the bus. He's like, you need to go meet Hershey and
1: Charlotte ASAP. In September, at the Capitals rookie camp, Gibson had told us how important the mental aspect of goaltending is and how meditation helps him find his focus.
12: He's kept at it. With the amount of traveling and that kind of stuff, it's hard to do when you're in a hotel room. So sometimes I might have to lock the bathroom door and be on the ground just to get, like, quiet. Um quiet in the room but in order to like it's it been helping me a lot with the travel
1: and we're just over halfway through now savannah looking to get it back here's vinnie marlowe a shot blockered by gibson i wanted to play you some play-by-play tape and get your reaction to a, a moment that happened the other week uh when when you were in goal okay
0: six skaters out for savannah pass out it's gonna go
5: and it's in a goal from south carolina
1: The opposing team mishandled the puck and accidentally shot it into their own net. And when that happens in hockey, the goal is credited to the player from the other team who touched it last.
12: And South Carolina is not sure who touched it last before the penalty. You could hear by the audio, it was really confusing what happened. Nobody knew who it was. Gibson said he stood there in goal,
1: trying to figure out who would get the credit. And then he saw his other team's goalie wave down
12: the ref from the bench to ask to keep the puck. And I was like, oh, it might be you, idiot. And then they were taking a while to announce who it was. And I was like, and then the longer they were taking, I was like, they're probably reviewing it to see if I touched it. And it, it was a really, it was an incredible moment. I mean, it, when to hear my name, you get called like that. So they're giving it to Mitchell Gibson. They're saying that Gibson
5: touched that puck last. That is goal number one of the
1: season for Mitchell Gibson. A goalie scoring a goal is a huge moment, of course. But Gibson told me his first pro season is memorable for another reason too.
12: Having my first pro win be with the Hershey Bears, the team that I grew up going to their games and going to the Hershey Park every year as a kid, and to finally like wear that jersey and go out and play and win a game—that was a pretty special one for for myself. And I didn't. And my dad actually drove up surprised me drove up to bridgeport from philly that day um so that i i had a really cool moment with him um hugging him in the lobby funny enough the last game i played last season for harvard we lost eight to one to ohio state in that same rank in bridgeport so that was the last game of my college career and then the first game of my pro career is back in that same building after letting up seven goals and getting killed to then coming back in my first pro game with Hershey and getting a win in that same building. That was a really cool moment for me and to share that with my dad who we were crying in the lobby at the end of last year and now we're, we're hugging you know with with a lot of happiness. Nice
1: nice all right Mitchell Gibson right now a South Carolina Stingray we are following him through the season as he's a Hershey Bear a Stingray maybe a capital we'll see thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This month, Netflix viewers say goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II. The streaming service's sweeping historical drama, The Crown, is ending its six season run with a final batch of episodes, and it does so a little more than a year after the real world death of Queen Elizabeth. Great Britain's longest reigning monarch is played in this final season by Imelda Staunton. I spoke to her last week to ask her what it was like to bring Queen Elizabeth's story to an end, and also what it was like to portray the queen during one of the most difficult moments in her 70 years on the throne, the death of Princess Diana in 1997.
13: If you don't mind, I'm concerned with being a grandmother to William and Harry. That's my priority. And I'd rather not be lectured on how or when to grieve or show emotion.
1: After Diana was killed in a car crash in Paris, the queen came under intense criticism for her initial lack of a public response and in the series created by Peter Morgan the monarch is also clearly frustrated and bewildered by the very un-British outpouring of emotion that followed Diana's death Staunton told us that was important
13: to show well I think it was great that Peter didn't shy away from that and that he did show the monarch not responding as she probably should have to the death. And I think she had no idea, obviously, how, I mean, that that was going to happen, that the response was going to be so intense. And it was wonderful to play a person who was torn. I don't think she'd ever been put in that position ever before. So I think she wrestled with it greatly. And I think her sense of duty at that time was to the immediate family. And it was puzzling, I think, to her why it should be so public. And yet she knew that her life was public mm-hmm. and her response would be seen by the nation and the world. And maybe that was her shock response. Maybe that was her sense of loss, not really knowing what to do and everyone telling her what to do and her having to just sort of stop and think about why she wasn't responding how the public wanted her to respond. So I love that it was difficult and awkward. And I like that Peter allowed us to show that
1: there's a scene in that final episode of the first half of the season it's almost a thesis statement for the whole show where charles says to your character you know essentially this family can't have it both ways we can't be a private family when we feel like it and a public family when we want to be
13: yes that's a great line isn't it but that's what peter does he show you know he'll he'll show the good the bad and the ugly and then you can make your your own minds up and i love that he doesn't shy away from that or just Paint the royal family as you know this extraordinary uh, uh, family for good and all that. That yeah. there are complications, and I love that he makes them complicated.
1: I, I do have to ask about this. It became controversial after the episodes posted. Decision to have scenes where Diana's ghost interacts with Charles and Elizabeth. Where where did you come down on those scenes?
13: Well, for me, I mean, I Diana for me for her for the Queen was just in her head. Yeah, that's how I felt it. It was just in her head. And, you know, you, you go along, there's a, a brilliant writer who's d- d- decided to do this particular way of telling this part of the story. And in my scenes, I suggested that I don't think I would literally see her, I think I would hear her, and feel her, but not see her. So that's how, you know, and that, that felt quite good for our scenes.
1: That was Imelda Staunton, who plays Queen Elizabeth II in the sixth and final season of The Crown, out now on Netflix. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Imelda Staunton tomorrow on All Things Considered.
7: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm John Karpilio. Start your week with 90.9 WBUR. Tomorrow we have scientific proof that the holiday spirit of giving is real. Give a little, get a lot. Listen again tomorrow morning on the radio and the WBUR app.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Regent Theater in Arlington, presenting a wide variety of music and dance concerts, independent film, and multicultural events tickets and info at regenttheater.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, LaurenHolleran.com.
7: Rain developing tonight. It will become heavy by tomorrow, a high wind warning from 5 a.m. tomorrow through tomorrow evening, with gusts of 55 to 65 possible, causing tree damage and power outages. Right now in Boston, 48 degrees.
3: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The number of veterans who are homeless rose 7.4% according to the most recent nationwide count. And that's slightly lower than the 12% increase among Americans overall. But despite this year's uptick, the latest number is still down 4.5% since 2020. With less than a month to go before the Iowa caucus, where people will vote for the Republican presidential nominee, former President Trump is still the front runner. but a new CBS poll shows Nikki Haley is picking up support, though Trump still leads 44 percent to Haley's 29 percent. And Activision Blizzard will pay around $54 million to settle discrimination claims brought by California's civil rights agency on behalf of women employed by the video game maker. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation.
1: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and I'm going to turn things over now to my colleague, Rachel Martin, for another conversation from her Enlighten Me series.
4: We are in it right now, aren't we? The holiday season and all the parties that come with it. You got your office parties, your family feasts, your neighborhood potlucks. And maybe you're good at these. You float around from corner to corner making appropriate small talk, deploying witty aphorisms like it's your J-O-B. You love this. You're the queen of the party, the sommelier of small talk. So this used to be me. I don't know exactly what happened, COVID or interviewing people for a living for a long time, age, whatever, but it's not me anymore. Now all I wanna do is cut the talk about holiday plans or work drama and go right for the jugular. I want to ask the big existential questions, and I want to ask them right from the get-go. Yes, I know this is not so cool to do at parties. Luckily, my bosses at NPR gave me this corner of the radio universe to indulge this new conversational craving. So that's what I did with this next guest. Maybe you know his name, Rishikesh Hirwe. He's a musician and the creator of the wildly popular podcast Song Exploder, where he breaks down one song each episode with the artist who created it. And they often go to deep places, which is why I knew he would be game for a different kind of conversation. In preparation for this conversation, I actually went back and I listened to the conversation that you and I had right when you were releasing the video version of Song Exploder on Netflix. So this was like October 2020. Yeah. And it was interesting because in the first couple of minutes of the conversation, you said the word intimacy three times <laughs> and everybody has a sense of what that word means. But I wondered if you would indulge me and put some more words to that definition. Like if you could unpack that, what, what does that word mean to you in the context of conversation?
5: I think it means that you get to a place where you feel comfortable being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. With someone else it's sort of a shared environment that has to get created between both people where uh, Everyone involved in the conversation can say yeah, I'm gonna let down my guard I'm going to reveal something true about myself Mm -hmm. or I have the potential to reveal something true about myself and I'm gonna actively Seek out some of those things, you know, we're gonna dig past small talk and get into the real stuff
4: so to that end will you be game to do something with me conversationally speaking okay you're like i don't know what is it <laughs> so um it's <laughs> i'm just going to ask you questions but i've thought about these questions and these are a few questions that i think are they're just like a main line to intimacy right yeah. they're they're the big ones and this is also the stuff that is is super personal to people and sometimes folks don't necessarily want to engage on these things, but I know you and I feel like you're going to be up for it. Okay. So when have you felt most
11: afraid?
5: Well, this might be recency bias, but a few weeks ago, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer I'm and she's my best friend. She uh, um, is my older sister and is so important to just, forming who I am and
8: is it just um, the two of you
5: it's just the two of us yeah Mm -hmm. and there was a moment where we didn't know much yet you know we there had been a biopsy there had been you know confirmation that there was a tumor that was malignant and I went on a walk with my wife and I just decided to allow myself to ask all the horrible potential questions just ask everything and face everything that I was scared of, not try and kind of keep it off to the side because there were things that I I felt like I needed to prepare myself for and things that I was going to need to have to deal with, you know, things that I would have to be able to deal with in a way that could be helpful to her and her family. Um, She has three young kids and she lives on the other side of the country.
4: Mm. Is the fear the unknown or is the fear losing your sister?
5: Yeah, the fear is losing my sister. Um, My mom passed away in 2020. We had another health scare last year where my dad, my dad had a fall, and now my sister has this cancer diagnosis. Mm. And I don't have any kids. And I think the fear is how unmoored it would be to be alone like that. It feels a little bit like there's a gravitational pull that keeps me on Earth. Um, that is, these three other people, one of them's already gone. Um, without the other ones, I feel like I'll just, you know, careen off the side of the planet. Do
4: you believe in some kind of God or divine power?
5: I don't think so. Not in the way that I think anybody else would use that word. I believe in some kind of secular magic, I guess, in the world. I think there are really magical things that happen. Sometimes they get labeled coincidence. Sometimes they get labeled as like a, I don't know, cathartic experience or transcendent experience. Mm -hmm. I think there are really incredible things that are part of, human existence and there are things that are beyond the realm of one person's knowing. Mm -hmm. And I'm fine with that. I think talking about God and ideas that are, I don't know, there are all kinds of attributes that get attached to that, that I think really just, um, end up feeling scary. And to me, like just ways of creating divisions between people. Mm Yeah. Yeah. I see religion as a sort of organizing principle for a few important things in a society and in a culture to provide some kind of framework for all these things that feel beyond our understanding, life and death and the you know these wonderful things that happen um, in between. Um, I think it, it's also a way to structure morality. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's also a way to organize a community through ritual and tradition and and things like that, things that a society needs, uh, really. I just happen to feel like I have access to those things or I was able to find my my own way to that kind of wonder Mm -hmm. and morality and my own version of traditions and, and rituals apart from a religious institution. What do you think happens when we die? think that's secular magic i mean secular magic in that you know there's uh we decompose and our and the cells turn into something else
4: well i guess that is magical you're right it is <laughs> yeah it
5: is <laughs> i mean the fact that the fact that like a tree could grow out of <laughs> what used to be a person is pretty magical
4: At what point in your life have you felt the most creatively alive?
5: Well, Song Exploder came out of a time in my life when I felt the opposite of that, where I felt really, uh, yeah, creatively dead, I'd say. People call it writer's block. That's what I called it for a long time. Creatively
4: Um, dead has a, a much bigger impact rhetorically than (laughs) than writer's block
5: yeah and i realize now that what that's really about is judgment the reason why i wasn't able to make anything was because i was just in this whirlpool of of self-judgment um and kind of you know sort of telling myself stories about my own worth as an artist or lack thereof Mm and so i i kind of just put music aside for a while cuz you um, you
4: weren't musically where you thought you were supposed to be in terms of a professional career arc
5: something like that yeah i um i was in my early 30s i'd put out four albums and i hadn't had a career that like broke out into something really extraordinary mm-hmm. um i mean it was extraordinary enough to have a career in music at all right but um but that's not how i saw it you know it, it felt like like what i had achieved wasn't enough. Yeah. And it didn't feel like I could see a path where I was gonna get there. So I kind of put it aside for a second and um I started doing Song Exploder as a kind of distraction, you know, a little side hobby idea that could also be a way to hopefully give myself a day job in between tours and making records and things like that. Yeah. Um and, It took off. And yeah, and then <laughs> it ended up taking up a lot of a lot of my time And um, and it also ended up reinforcing a lot of the judgment that I had for myself, because while talking to some of the huge names and people that I just really admired, I felt even more convinced that there was sort of no need for me to keep making music, because what's the point? Okay, so that Uh, doesn't
4: seem like a very healthy mental place to have been.
5: No, it wasn't great, which is why I think it felt like quite creatively dead. You know, it just even as you were
4: making this thing that has become so amazing, Song Exploder, it. Even in the midst of that success, you were feeling even more vulnerable and sad.
5: Yeah, I think it it took a while for that to set in. I didn't realize it uh, at first, but after a few a few years, I started to realize how much I missed making music. And so, in twenty twenty one, I was I, I sort of created this uh, schedule for myself um, where one day a week. I would do nothing but music. On Fridays, I would only work on music. I would set everything else aside. I wouldn't look at my emails. I wouldn't have any meetings. I wouldn't do anything for the podcast. I wouldn't, you know, ju- yeah. just music. Um, it allowed some space for my brain to get bored. I, another thing that I learned was how much boredom was like an essential part of creativity. Mm. Maybe boredom is too strong of a word for it, but it's something like... No,
4: I like it. I get it.
5: Yeah, some kind of idleness. Yeah. I don't know, to let some kind of alchemical reaction happen in your brain molecules. If they're constantly occupied by something else, it's never gonna happen. But if you give yourself, you know, you go on a walk or you go on a drive or something, you're leaving 80% of your brain unoccupied. Mm -hmm. That's when I found new ideas could, could come out or I could sort of metabolize things that have been stirring in me for a while.
9: All the things that happened
5: haven't happened yet, but suddenly I feel the
4: weight of memory. Rishi Hiray, he is a musician, music producer, and also the host of the hit podcast Song Exploder. For the last 10 years, congratulations on that, by the way.
5: Thank you so much.
4: And thank you for talking to me. It's been so fun.
5: Thank you for having me. It's such an honor.
1: The directors of All Things Considered, they do a lot behind the scenes. They've got the very powerful job of being the person who tells me when to talk and when not to talk. And beyond that, they also pick the wonderful music breaks that you hear every single show. We're taking some time on the program at the end of the year to talk with our show directors about some of the music they listen to the most in 2023. Think about it as All Things Considered wrapped. And this weekend, we are talking to producer Elena Burnett. Hey, Elena. Hey, Scott. Okay, so in this series, every director has had a theme, and your theme, I am told, is dance parties?
6: Yes. So this started for me at the beginning of the pandemic. I live, and I still do, in a small studio apartment. And to sort of keep myself sane, I decided that every single day, I was going to dance to a song.
1: So this started as something you did around your apartment. Does this mean the dance parties are going with? Does this mean you're you're just breaking out to dance all over the place? Yeah,
6: it is. It oh, is. Okay. And then like a big part of this I should preface is I'm really bad at keeping track of popular music. Like really bad. So I get very excited and I start dancing when a song that I actually know plays on the radio. Makes sense. And that happened a lot this year with my most listened to band, like Street Dive. <laughs> They are everywhere, in D.C. grocery stores, and Albuquerque outdoor malls, in Edinburgh stationery stores, and I mean, those are all places that now have been graced by an Elena Burnett dance party.
1: How far did you extend this? Like, what was the outer limit of a place that you were like, you know what, I'm just going to dance?
6: <laughs> I mean, you know, it got pretty... I, I was in the UK a lot this year, and mm-hmm. I, I danced my way through it. Um, but, you know, sometimes you don't really feel like dancing in public. Sometimes you just want to have it just for yourself. That's where running comes in for me. It's kind of like a socially sanctioned dance party. It's kind of yeah. like everybody around you's listening to the same song like a silent disco. And so I think that's why The Head in the Heart's Every Shade of Blue was my top song this year. It's been long. then the beat kicks in and there's this kind of like that just like zaps right through you and the drums are just running right along with you.
1: I would like to point out that I feel like I'm dancing to the music more than you are during this interview and I feel like that's ironic and I just wanna address that and see if we can fix it. (laughs) You, You mentioned you traveled a lot this year. How did the music follow you?
6: while I was away, I missed a lot of concerts that I would have loved to see. Mm -hmm. And the most devastating one that I missed was Sammy Ray and the Friends. Um, Their music is just so infectious. It's like fireworks. Um, But thankfully, they released a concert album of their tour, If It All Goes South. And that album became what I listened to on repeat every plane ride I took this year. And the live just added this great element to it, Um, listening to them riff together. It's an actual party on stage. In fact, there's a song literally called Let's Throw a Party. And it kind of crescendos into this, like, glorious, joyful, chaotic beauty, and it's just the exact go-for-broke vibe that you want from a good dance party. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, the dance mantra is go put a smile on somebody's face, go tell somebody they've got a place in this world, go tell somebody you want to be friends with them. And that is just the kind of pure human joy and connection that their music makes you feel. And I also think that's what these bursts of dancing have been for me, kind of a way to be a friend to myself and make myself smile. And this year more than ever, to connect and smile with friends and family
3: and even strangers.
12: I really like this approach.
3: Thank
6: you.
12: That is All Things Considered Producer